2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. Once again, let's now to the reading of God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. <clears throat> Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Lord, truly bless this, uh, his holy word. Let's pray. O gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for Again, this opportunity to study your word and to study the truth that it declares to us. And as we come to this passage, this topic, uh, we just pray that you would give us understanding and insight. We know it can be difficult at times to uh, to wrestle with some of these, uh, these uh, doctrinal issues. And yet we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would be working in our hearts even now to give us great understanding of the truth that you have revealed in your word. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, here at the beginning of Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul is reminding Timothy of our calling in Christ. He says in verse 9 that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Well, in this one verse, Paul has packed in uh, quite a bit of truth. We see uh, several uh, important things here. First, we see God's calling was entirely of his abounding grace and the good purpose of his will, not by our own works or anything that we've done. We also see that though the calling happened at a certain point in history, that it was actually made to people at a certain point in history, it was actually appointed to be extended before time began. That is, even before the foundation of the world was established. Next, we see that the calling was made possible by Jesus Christ. That is, in who he was and in what he accomplished 
as the only begotten Son of God who came to die for undeserving sinners. And then finally, we see that it's a holy calling. It is not only extended by a most holy God, but also a calling with the intent and the purpose to make us holy, even after the perfect holy image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are all very significant truths in understanding uh, our calling in Christ, and we've considered uh, many of them already. But as we consider this concept of calling and God's effectual call, we want to take time this evening to consider exactly who it is that God calls. Now, last time we considered God's effectual call, and we made the point that there are two related but different calls. There's a general outward call, and then there's a special inward call. The outward call is that which is extended indiscriminately wherever and whenever the gospel is proclaimed. Right? All who physically hear the words of the gospel are called to faith and repentance when that gospel is proclaimed. That's the general outward call that's made uh, with the proclamation of the gospel. But it's only by the special inward call that's effective unto salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. The special inward call comes to God's elect. That is, those whom God predestined or chose before the foundation of the world, even before time began. As Paul reminded Timothy, when this special inward and effectual call comes, it comes independent of anything in the one call. That is, it's not dependent upon their works or their will. The Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 2, notes this, This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive, Therein, And so God's call comes from his free and special grace. And what's amazing is that God doesn't have to call anyone to himself. We're all sinners deserving of God's just wrath. And so when God calls someone to salvation, it isn't because they're special. It isn't because they're good. It isn't because God looked down the corridor of time and then uh, and, and called those uh, whom would respond positively. No, there's nothing in mankind that brings God's effectual call to them. We see this in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans nine verse ten. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And as we read there in Deuteronomy, God is uh, declaring how he is calling Israel uh, to be his special people in the Old Testament. And so it wasn't based on, you know, Israel wasn't the greatest nation, the biggest nation, the strongest. No, they were the weakest of all. And yet God graciously and sovereignly chose them, even as he graciously and sovereignly chooses those whom he saves through Jesus Christ. So those called by God are called according to his own purposes, 
not because of who a person is or what they've done. And again, we see that there uh, in that Romans 9 passage with Jacob and Esau. They hadn't even done anything good or, or bad, and yet God chose Jacob, the younger, uh, to be the son of the covenant promise. Well, we also see here the close connection between God's, again, decree of election and his call. Right? God surely calls to salvation all those whom he's elected. Right? And so if we know a person's not going to be called effectually if they haven't first been elected by God before the foundation of the world. And we also know that a person who God, whom God has elected before the foundation of the world, God is not at some point going to forget to call them. He will in time, at the appointed time, call them to himself and they will come to faith in Christ. This further shows us that our salvation, again, is all of God and, and that it's securely in his hands. Again, uh, Romans 8, verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, there he, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Right? This is the um, what's called the golden chain of salvation. It begins with God's decree of election before the foundation of the world. In time, he calls them. And then he justifies them, and then in this, uh, then they're sanctified, and then ultimately they will be glorified. It's all of God, and not of man. Mankind is passive in this respect, as the confession notes. Passive because we can't do anything to help ourselves. Right? We're unable to help ourselves because of our sin. In fact, not only are we not able, but we're also not willing to help ourselves. Romans 3, Paul says, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So it's not just that we're unable, but we're even unwilling to come to God. But when God's effectual call is made and comes to the elect... Well, then there's that transformation that happens. They're regenerated. That is, they're quickened in their hearts to newness of life. And it's then and only then that they are then able to respond. But not only are they able to respond, but then they're also made willing to respond. And they do so, they do respond willingly. Again, God doesn't drag anyone to himself kicking and screaming. He doesn't effectually call someone who, who's not going to answer, and there are none who will hear the effectual call and don't in time come to faith. Right? Because it's God's plan and purpose. And when He extends that call, it will achieve what God has determined. Because He is the sovereign God, and none can stay His hand. And so the confession then continues, Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So only until we are quickened can we respond then to the call of the gospel. And as the Apostle Paul confirms in Ephesians 2, reminding us of our condition that we were dead in trespasses, and yet now we're made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and so we know, as we think about a dead man, a dead man can't do anything, let alone something that is good. But again, once the dead man is brought back to life, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, well then he willingly 
believes in God. But the regeneration of the effectual call comes because of God's grace and mercy upon the undeserving sinner. Because again, as a dead man, he can't respond in any way. So the one whom God has chosen in time, those who God has chosen in time are called inwardly through the preaching of the word and the power of the spirit. And as Jesus says in John 5, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And there Jesus is talking about that effectual call, that when they hear his word, they will uh, believe, and they will believe unto everlasting life. But what about the one who isn't elect? Confession goes on to say in, in chapter 10, paragraph 4, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, that would be the outward call, and may have some common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. So not everyone, we know, is going to be effectually called, because not everyone is of God's elect. Remembering that the effectual call is is ordinarily the Spirit of God accompanied by and working through the Word of God preached. And we can see evidence of this because we know that uh, the Word is preached, many hear it, but not everyone is saved because not everyone heard the effectual call because not everyone has been uh, chosen and elect by God. What the Confession stresses here is first, that some may hear the word preached and are called to respond to the gospel, but they never do respond. Right? So they hear the word, they hear the call, but they never respond. Well, why don't they respond? Again, if the Spirit hasn't quickened their hearts and enabled them to respond, they're not going to. Their hearts remain dead and hardened. Again, there are many people who hear the gospel preached and yet they never respond in faith. But secondly, there are some who actually uh, who do hear, and they appear to be called, and even enjoy some, uh, what the confession calls, some common operations of the Spirit, and yet they truly aren't saved. Well, how do we know who these are? Well, Jesus gives us an example in the parable of the sower. He actually gives us uh, two, two examples. Right? The seed that is sown among the rocks and the seed that is sown among the thorns. You remember the seed that's sown among the rocks? Uh, it grows up quickly, but when the sun comes out, it quickly shrivels up and dies because it had no root. And Jesus goes on to explain that these are those who um, appear to believe and they grow and it looks like they, they have life. And yet the heat of persecution comes and trials and they are not, the the roots are not set and so they shrivel up. And then of course there's a seed that is sown among the thorns and this also springs up but they end up getting choked out 
And again, Jesus describes that as those who hear the word and who seemingly respond and they grow, but then they get choked out by the cares and the concerns of the world. Now these are some people, or there are some people who hear the gospel preached, and perhaps because of emotions, or maybe it's a desire to please someone else, and they falsely make a profession. And they may even be baptized, they may even join the church, they may even participate in the Lord's Supper, not to mention the ministry and fellowship of the church, and yet, they don't truly believe. So that when a trial comes in their life, Instead of clinging to Christ, as we considered this morning, they flee and they renounce their faith. Now, it isn't that they've lost their salvation. It's that they were never saved in the first place. And, of course, we know some can be quite good about pretending to walk the walk and talk the talk. But there's still a deadness in their hearts that was never brought to life in the first place. But paragraph 4 continues this way in the chapter 10 of the Confession. Much less can men, not professing the Christian religion, be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. And to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be, de- to, uh, to be detested. So this addresses the issue of salvation outside of Christ. Well, we know that Christianity is the only true and viable religion, but it isn't just carrying the name Christian that saves, as there are many who claim the name of Christ and yet aren't saved. Right? Jesus shows us this in Matthew 7, saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, of course, we can think of Judas being an example of this very thing, one who uh, exercised this power. When Jesus sent out the twelve, two by two, on a short-term mission trip, Judas was there casting out demons and, and healing the sick. And yet he was never truly converted. And he was unknown, ultimately, to the Savior. And evidenced then by his final betrayal and rejection of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these, though, they were okay and safe in Christ. They, They looked like they were safe in Christ, but they weren't. Again, we ask the question, why? Well, it's because they weren't truly called, and ultimately because they weren't truly elected by God. If they had been truly elected, if they had been truly called, they would have obeyed Christ's commands, and they would have remained. Now, a common refrain that we hear today is that all religions are the same, or that all paths, all the different religions lead to the one true God. Well, we know this is simply untrue. We've considered this before. Not be, it's untrue not because the confession says so, but because Jesus says so. Right? John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get any clearer than that. There's only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And again, there are many sincere and devout believers of other religions, 
Right? Many who may, will even meticulously follow all the rules and the ordinances of their faith, but unless they are reborn and follow Christ, they're not saved. In fact, the confession notes that it's pernicious and to be detested to assert and maintain this. And indeed, there are many who call themselves Christians who assert this very thing. And they're leading these people astray. And so diligence and sincerity in a false religion is ultimately vanity and comes to nothing. Also, there are many good people in the world, as humanity would count goodness. Right? People who try by the light of nature to do what is right. right? There's a lot of law-abiding citizens and people who, who like to help other people. But again, if they haven't Christ, then they aren't saved. Because they've not been called, they've not been elected. Salvation comes to those who are predestined and called by God, who are regenerated and reborn, and who believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Now ordinarily, again, this effectual call comes through the preaching of God's word and is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to stress here ordinarily, because there are some special extraordinary ways to salvation. Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraph, uh, or chapter 10, paragraph 3, says this, Elect infants, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. And so there are two special cases that are noted here. One is, is those who may not have the mental capacity to understand. Right? And those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world, well, those ones are truly saved. Let's remember that it's not what we know or don't know that condemns us before God, but it is the fact that we are sinners. And unless God pours out His grace and mercy upon us, then we remain in that condition of sin. And if we re- remain in that condition of sin, then we rightly and deservedly just uh, deserve His just wrath. Then we come to this, the fate of children who die in infancy. And this is truly a difficult uh, doctrine in this regard. Ultimately, it's left to the grace and mercy of a just and almighty God. On such an occasion, people are greatly overcome with grief. Right? When, there's a, a, when there's a loss of a child, either uh, one that um, hasn't quite reached uh, the point of birth, a miscarriage, or even uh, young children who uh, die when still very young. Now, in an attempt to give comfort, it's quite easy to get caught up in the emotional aspects of, of what we want and, and desire and lose sight of the truth of God's Word. And that's one of the reasons why we have to keep our emotions in check and always be reminded of what the Bible says and what God's Word says. And so on such occasions, as a child dying in infancy, the safest and really the only thing that we can say, according to the Scriptures, is that all elect infants dying in infancy are saved. We can't just say, as many Christians do, 
that all children who die are saved and go to heaven. Because first, we know that Scripture is virtually silent on this particular issue. And then secondly, when we take into account the Bible's teaching on the sinfulness of human nature, on God's sovereign decrees, and on the way of salvation, it simply doesn't allow for such a broad statement to be made without any kind of understanding. Yes, it's what we want to say, but according to the Scriptures, we really can't. According to God, as revealed in the Bible, we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And here all means all. Paul confirms this later in Romans 5 verse 12, saying, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And the tense here for sinned is perfect. That's a past action that has a, a continuous effect. And so in the past, in Adam... We all sinned, and so we're all born sinful and guilty before God. And because of our guilt before God, we're all deserving of death. Now, some try to get around this fact by claiming that children are innocent, and that they're innocent before God until they reach an age of accountability, an unknown age when they're able to determine for themselves right and wrong. Well, aside from the fact that as a sinner we'll never be able to understand the difference between right and wrong unless we're regenerated by the Spirit of God, the Bible has no such teaching of childhood innocence or an age of accountability. In fact, it affirms the very opposite, that children aren't innocent but are guilty of sin. uh, Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. So if we can't, with certainty, say that all children who die in infancy are saved and go to heaven. And we don't want to say that all children who die in infancy are not saved and therefore go to hell. Even though that's exactly the just due penalty for one who is born sinful. Well, then the only thing that we can say with any certainty is that all elect children who die in infancy go to heaven. Now, it's certainly possible, according to God's mercy and grace and the great mystery of His will, that all children who die in infancy are of the elect. And we might hope this to be true. Since God obviously has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass and knows what will happen. However, we don't know the mind of God. And so we can't just assume that all who die in infancy are elect. But I do believe that Christian parents who have a child who dies in infancy, and I do believe the scriptures do give a great hope and a comfort to Christian parents who find themselves in such a difficult situation. Even a certainty about the eternal residence of their children. And there are several things to base this on. First, it's based on God's covenant faithfulness. When we believe on Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we're in covenant with God. God's covenant always, always has children in view. And we've considered this before. That is, they're not made with just one individual, individual, but with that individual and all their descendants. And we see this in Acts 2. 
And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so God's covenant promises are given to the children of believers. And of course, this is why we administer the sign of the covenant of baptism to our children. Because God has promised that He'll be their God and they will be His people. God's covenant gives us this assurance. Also consider 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Well here Paul seems to be indicating that even if only one parent is is a Christian the rest of the household are beneficiaries of God's covenant and the children are considered holy. Not that they're completely pure and innocent without sin, but they do hold a special privilege that the children of non-Christian parents don't. And finally, we consider the only clear reference in Scripture to the eternal fate of an infant who died. And that's 2 Samuel 12 the child that was born to uh, David and, and Bathsheba after their sin. <clears throat> and we read this in Second Samuel 12, verse 22, And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I want you to note David's confidence when he says, I shall go to him. One day, David is saying that he will see his son. And again, we remember David was a believer in God. He had faith in the promises that pointed ultimately toward the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He was a man after God's own heart. David himself was going to heaven. And even though David wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 58, even though he knew his child was was born in sin and, and came forth from the womb speaking lies, David had the hope and the confidence, because of God's covenant promises, that his son would be in heaven. Now we can't, without doing a great injustice to the text and context here, we can't unfortunately expand this To be the hope of all parents. Because David as a believer had this hope for his son. Because he himself was a believer in God's covenant. And so sadly unbelieving parents don't have this same hope for themselves. And so we can't automatically assume that the hope applies to their children. Perhaps it does. But we don't know. God has not specifically given us that indication. Again, by, perhaps by the amazing grace of good pleasure of God, that all children who die in infancy are elect of God. We want to believe that. But we can really only safely and certainly say what the Scriptures reveal. That all elect children who die in infancy are saved and will go to heaven. And again, this is a very difficult doctrine. And yet, even in these matters, where our hearts want more, we have to submit 
to God's word. And we must be guided only by what the word of God says. Because it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And when this difficult matter is put in the light of the awesome grace of God, that none of us are deserving of salvation, yet God, because of His great love for us, not only sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins and pay our penalty, but He graciously now, because of what Christ has done, effectually calls those whom He appointed before the foundation of the world. None deserving, but all whom He predestined, He called, He justifies, He'll sanctify, and one day He will glorify to the praise and glory of God's name alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for these reminders. And this is challenging to struggle through. And and Father, we just pray that You would help us to see the truth of Your Word and that we understand there's much that we do not know. We would like to, to hope and to guess and to, and to offer comfort when there is great distress. But we, we must be very careful to be guided by the truth of your word. And we just praise you and thank you that you do give us hope. That you do give us comfort. That those whom you elect before the foundation of the world... That we may not know all who they are. But you will call them in time. And that those who have been appointed will come. And they will respond in faith. And that they will be spared of what everyone deserves. Your just wrath and curse. And the only way that we're able to be spared from that. Is not because of what we've done. It's not because of, of our innocent condition. And what we know or don't know, or whether we can understand right or wrong. But the only hope that we have is your grace and your love and your mercy poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord, who paid the penalty for us, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might have peace and reconciliation with you, that we might even now live to the praise and glory of your holy name. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these truths. Even as we consider this morning, we pray for wisdom. Because these are hard things. But we just pray that you would give us the wisdom and understanding. That you alone would be glorified in these things. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.